I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a little bit on the business side, talking about a concept that I believe applies to your life as an individual even more than it applies to your business life. Sabrina Horn is an award-winning CEO, a C-suite advisor, a communications expert, a speaker, and now an author. With only $500 and five years of work experience, she moved from the East Coast of the US to Silicon Valley, where she founded Horn Group, a public relations firm that for over a quarter of a century advised thousands of executives and their companies from the hottest startups to the Fortune 500 about how to build a strategic PR and communication strategy. One of the very few female CEOs in Silicon Valley in the early 1990s, Sabrina actually found her special uh, magic recipe for how to succeed in a world that was highly dominated by men. Sabrina is here today to share with us why fake it till you make it just does not work, at least not long enough to build a sustainable business. Sabrina's firm became one of the most iconic, enduring firms in the tech world. She won awards for best US employer, best tech agency, and many more. She has written for publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, and CMO.com, and is a frequent uh, speaker at leadership uh, conferences. Sabrina is also now the author of Make It, Don't Fake It, Leading with Authority for Real Business Success, which we'll release on June 22nd. I think we're going to have a very interesting, authentic conversation about one of the sentences that I hate most in life, the idea of fake it till you make it. Sabrina Horn. My conversation today is entirely because I love that statement that you make in your book. So the idea of fake it till you make it, I believe is humanity's worst statement ever. And in so many ways, I I hate fakeness, but also as an executive through my life, I realized that those who fake it actually never make it. They keep faking it most of their life unless they cheat someone and that's not a very genuine making it and then they're figured out. Now, your book is Make It, Don't Fake It. And I love, love that title. I wanna talk a lot about it. But I wanna first introduce you because I think it's important for our uh, listeners to know the magnitude of what you've achieved. As a young woman, you left the East Coast, you went to California, and you became probably one of the most prominent PR people in tech. Tell me about this. How did that happen? And how did it feel along the way? I mean, what was your experience overall? Yeah, so it was certainly an interesting journey. And when I started off at the age of 29, I had just had an idea and I had a head full of steam, but I 
I had no management experience, no leadership training. I only had five years of job experience. So you might say I knew enough to be dangerous, you know, to, <laughs> to at least to to at least be a good PR professional and to be good at my craft and to lead my clients, you know, hopefully down the right path and give them the right counsel. And I, I always just believe that you can never rest on your laurels. You can have a sip of wine or a toast to a successful day or meeting. You spend your whole life building a reputation, but you can blow it in five minutes. Mm. And so I just kept going and strong work ethic and just never, never give up, always persevere. And uh, I think I learned that from my parents who are both immigrants, who told me there's no free lunch in life. So growing up with that, that kind of mentality, right, it was in my DNA. And you make your own luck, you go along, you win one client, then you win another one, and you're successful for them, then others want to join the club mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, you start to build a network, a good ecosystem. And all of a sudden, 10 years in, you realize like, wow, like we're, we're something now. Like we have a seat at the table and people are calling us. So that was quite a heady feeling, but it also raises the bar again, you know, like, wow, the stakes are even higher now. So now we have to be even better. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's kind of was my mentality all along. You sort of set the stage for public relations in tech. What did you do differently? I mean, I, I spent most of my life in tech. I worked in Microsoft for a very long time, worked in, in Google for a very long time. And I never really thought there was anything different other than maybe it was a bit more exciting, if you want. Of course, until it wasn't. Like, you know, if you work at Google, it suddenly turns from excitement to fire. And, and <laughs> it was really difficult times. I, I'll tell you openly from a PR point of view, I believe we sucked. We did really, really badly. So what was different about your approach? Yeah. So I started the company in 1991. And in the early 90s, public relations back then was really a very tactical marketing function. It was more about grinding out press releases and the more the better and just making noise, holding press conferences that human beings actually went to to listen to somebody talk, you know. <laughs> and, you know, this is the days before the internet, before social media, before Uber, before any of that. So my, my approach was to offer more of a, you know, whatever strategic meant back in those days, like a thought process where every move you make is in anticipation of the next. And... I didn't think that that was novel. It just made common sense. <laughs> yeah. But but it was more of a like thinking like a business person, not just like a PR person. So if you understand what your client's business is and where they're headed and the problems they're going to face in another quarter or by the end of the year, then you have to think strategically, okay, what I'm doing today for them has to help them get to where they want to be in their business in that time frame too. And it changes the whole way your team and your people interact with each other, how they think, how they talk to the client, how they talk to the press. And I think that was really the kernel of, of the different thought process. But I'll make another point. Over time, 
it also became not just about the written word or the spoken word, it became about pictures and telling a story through video and integrating these different forms of communication, whatever they were, into this thing called communications or PR. Can I take a, an interesting other side of this? 1991, 29-year-old woman. I mean, people forget, people forget, but 1991 was still years of massive oppression. I don't mean to say that in a bad way. I mean, I'm the biggest supporter of women and femininity in the world, but, but it wasn't easy. I mean, the tech world today is still hyper-masculine. Imagine how it was in 1991. How did you get through that? I wrote about this in my book because I had to talk about this thing about being a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just made sure that I was really smart, that I had something to offer, and that I did my homework. And I never thought about the fact that I'm a woman when I walked into the room. I never prepared for it. I never compensated for it. I never played into it. I just had to be wicked smart. And I think that and I had to be, you know, really, the word authenticity back then wasn't really a word in our vocabulary like it is today. But I, I think I just spoke with just utter honesty and said things like, you can't do that. Or why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. Or we can't do that. And I think that was disarming. And, and I got an audience, you know, that way. That's not to say that gender bias never affected me. There were plenty of situations where, you know, which you could make a movie out of. <laughs> we should. Yeah. You know, about how men and unfortunately some women behave badly, uh, either to me directly or, or to the men and women on my staff. And those people don't get to work with my company. And uh, we let several clients go because, because of that. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah you make those choices, right? So you have to take that stand. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's like, I don't want my people to feel my employees, you know, that I put up with something like that. That's not right. They learn from me. And if I'm the one setting the standard, then I have to live up to that. Like, that's not cool. You don't treat my people that way. And even during the recession, when every dollar really, really mattered, we had to fire one of our largest clients because this CEO was treating my, my team badly and was verbally abusive. And you just have to do that. And the benefit of that is when you go home at night, you know, you may have lost a lot of money, but, but you feel taller and you feel like you did the right thing. Mm. And you, you know, you live by your values and that keeps people motivated during tough times. That makes those people say like, okay, you know, I believe in this company and I'm going to stick it out. And, and the word gets around. Oh, I love, I love that. That's by the way, why I'm a big fan. I, I think the truth is, so I'm, I'm like you, right? I'm a Middle Eastern. My name is Muhammad Ali. When it came to the senior management of Google, I was probably the only non-American, non-white, non-Western, if you want. And yeah, I, like you, I also realized that it wasn't about highlighting my differences. I actually never felt that I was different. I basically felt that I was carrying the same responsibilities. I was engaging with the same commitment. I may have even more interesting views sometimes because of my wider perspective on life. And I treated life that way. 
And you have to agree, I mean, the idea of taking stance because it's not just about me and it's not just about you. I think it's about setting that example of, yeah. you know what, there is a right way to do things. But what I will say what I love most about what you said is I just had to be smart. And in an interesting way, if you don't mind me bringing that topic, I believe that feminine intelligence is probably, I mean, that's is probably more interesting than, than masculine intelligence. I mean, I, I work on my femininity quite a lot. And I think intuition is by far a more intelligent way of looking at things than linear thinking. Linear thinking is a lot more executional. One, one is a feminine trait and the other is more of a masculine trait. But I think what happened in our life is more and more now women are realizing that they can actually come to work with that approach, not saying, hey, this is unfair, but saying, look at me, I'm amazing. Look at me, I'm smart. Look at me, I can see the world differently. I can do things differently. I can do it better because it's different. And I think that really makes a big difference. And I think you choosing to do this is, uh, is really probably a big cornerstone of what made you successful. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something I thought about, you know, it, <laughs> it, just, it, just, it just was, you know, what I, it felt better to be that way, to be operating with that level of authenticity and candor than to try and be something I wasn't. And of course, when you're new to the role and you have these clients who expect certain things of you and employees and, oh my God, you're making payroll for people every two weeks, you try on different clothes to see what fits and to see what's comfortable and you try on different styles and you see these other CEOs, mostly all men, 95% more than that men in tech and how they behave and, you know, strut their stuff. And, and uh, I faked it. I tried on some of those approaches or said things that it was like, oh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> like, well, why, you know, or sell, can you get us in the Wall Street Journal, Sabrina? Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> you know, but that... That, that comes back to bite you. And it's better to just say, that certainly is a possibility. Here's what it's going to take. And that makes me feel better because I can't set expectations so high and then not be able to deliver them. I get anxiety if I overpromise and can't deliver. And that's not the right way to lead your people either because then they'll do it. And then your whole company is going to be in a position where it's behind the eight ball before it even starts. Let's focus on the book for a minute. I mean, you could have written about anything. You could have written your biography. You could have written about marketing. You could have written about PR, tech, whatever. And yet you choose to write about make it, don't fake it. First of all, why? What's the inspiration? And then tell me a bit about what does that mean? I mean, in reality, it's a big statement, but it's a fake statement. So the inspiration behind it is a few things. I was always told that I should write a book about my crazy career in PR in <laughs> yeah. tech. But I didn't want to write a book about PR and marketing. There's plenty of great books out there about that. I wanted to make a statement about where we were in time and space, basically in, over the last sort of five to 10 years, this sort of creeping notion I had of how we're losing the purpose or the main thread of doing things the right way. And the fake it till you make it mantra 
I mean, we used to say it too in the office, in the hallway, like, are you ready for this meeting? Oh, fake it till you make it. (laughs) And it was sort of a funny tongue in cheek thing to say, but then like it stuck, right? It grabbed onto things and it became this really bad business advice that my kids listen to and they, they think is acceptable. So I thought, you know, there's something there that has to be corrected, that has to be written about and using my profession, of course, which public relations has, you know, is like the reputation of spin meisters and it's all about spin and, you know, things that are the opposite of authenticity. And actually it couldn't be further from the truth because PR is all about actually getting to the truth. The best PR is about that. So I use the, the color and the stories and some of the craziness of my career to make that point in various ways, as a leader, as you know, a person, as a single mother, as a person who is on a journey. And I thought that would really be the most interesting way to make that point and to help entrepreneurs, CEOs, or really anybody who's on the ascent in their career to think about that and to give them some tools to help them kind of stay on the straight and narrow. It couldn't be more timely, I will have to say. I mean, even as individuals, not just CEOs and business leaders, I think the notion of faking is becoming really the the sign of the times. If you want, you go to social media today and all you see is, even if it's not faked, at least a highly edited, censored side of the world is that it is something that a lot of people have taken for granted, as you rightly said. Why do you think we're going in that direction? I mean, why aren't people, is it because faking now more and more sort of is accepted as the norm? I think it's easier to fake it. It's harder. It's harder to be authentic. It's harder to run a business with integrity. And the reason why is To operate a business with integrity and authenticity means you have to be operating in reality. And dealing with reality as a leader is not always easy. In fact, it's incredibly hard. When you're dealing with a crisis, if you're losing a client, if you lost a big deal, it's easy to blame it on, uh, they had, uh, they brought in somebody from New York or, you know, the, the account rep was dating the prospect. That's why they won or not say you're Boeing with the max disaster, not really acknowledging fully transparently what happened there or Theranos, of course, we know that story with Elizabeth Holmes, right? To the most extreme examples, all the way to the most basic everyday sorts of examples of exaggerating the truth when you're meeting with a venture capitalist to raise that round. It's easier to fake it than it is to find the words to be honest. So those are the shortcuts, right? Those are the shortcuts that I've sought way too often and experienced myself and, and learned from. But ultimately the point is, if you fake it, it's you're gonna be exposed. It could take five minutes or five days or five years, but the truth always comes out. And when it does, it's gonna set you back And meanwhile, you have to live with it somewhere in your body. It knows that you weren't entirely honest and you have to live with that while you're hoping that the truth doesn't come out. So that's sort of some of the thinking behind like why that mantra is so bad. It really is. I always feel that the biggest issue with it is that you have to constantly 
filter your heart. So if you tell a lie once, and then you have to remember for the rest of your life to always keep, always keep the story the same way because you told them it was three quarters of a mile. It's not a mile. So every time your heart wants to say it's a mile, no, 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 remember filter this and then filter that. Actually, my, you know, people sometimes say I'm a good public speaker and I normally say, no, I'm not. I'm a good heart cleaner. I really, really, truly find what's in my heart, honestly, and find the best way to say it. If, you know, if it upsets some people and alienates them, fine, they were never going to like me anyway. That's the easiest way to do it. Tell us some examples, because I think your, your experience has come across some of the most interesting stories of faking it and most interesting <laughs> stories of, of making it. Mm-hmm. So I gave just one example of uh, entrepreneurs who want to go get venture capital funding. And, you know, I see their PowerPoint decks or they want to hire us as a firm. And, you know, they say, well, you know, we're about 10 million in revenues and we have, uh, you know, 50 customers. And, but I, I did my due diligence and actually they have maybe 5 million in revenues and, and they have like five customers that are beta customers and, and probably three of those aren't going to uh, stay their right. customers. <laughs> and, you know, so, so then actually what is the story that we have to tell here and how can we help you build a brand that's going to last? So that's just sort of for starters, right? Then you work with a company and uh, you do their messaging and their positioning and it's this beautiful campaign. And But, you know, the company missed the, the quarter and, and, you know, they didn't do so well the second quarter. And so now, you know, the board is saying, well, what's wrong with what, marketing and PR? Let's change the messaging. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's like the messaging is part of a bigger picture, but it's not going to fix your revenue problem. You know, there's something else going on with that. And you can't build a brand that will stick if you're constantly changing ad hoc the company's messaging or positioning or because then nothing will stick and people won't know who you who you are. Other examples, I mean, I'll share a personal example if that's of interest. It was 2009 and uh, recession hurt everybody, hurt us. And we were pitching a half a million dollar piece of business. It was a fintech company and it was a huge account. It was integrated across PR, social, they wanted a website, digital, video, everything. And and I thought, we've got to get that deal, half a million dollar deal. So we went in and we overpromised. We said we had all the people to do this work. I didn't have the people. I figured I'll find them. With this kind of revenue influx, I can find those people. And can we do the job? Do we have the skills? Do we, have we done this before? Oh yeah, you know, no worries. We've got it. The chemistry was great. Everything else was great. But you know what? We were behind the eight ball before we even started. And we lost pieces of that account until we lost it all because the co-founders had no patience for our delays and our inability to deliver. And and it was a terrible feeling that I had let them down. We made the VP of marketing who hired us look bad. It was his reputation on the line. So, you know, you can see like we faked it and the scope creep was enormous. 
Plus, we hurt our own reputation. Like, you know, I can't use that company as a reference going forward. God forbid they go to a conference and somebody asks them who they use for PR. Oh, my God. If they said my name, you know, it's terrible. <laughs> so that's an example on multiple levels, right, of total failure and sabotaging your own success. But Sabrina, I mean, you blow me away because I attended, of course, as an executive in tech, I must have attended five media trainings. You know, every time I joined a new place or a new career or whatever, and they would take me through that media training. And it's all about which side of the truth would you say in which way so that you make yourself look better. And I'm like, isn't that called lying? I mean, isn't the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And you come at this from almost the opposite side. I'm guessing here, most people will say, oh, you don't know what you're doing. But in reality, you actually know better than the others. I mean, in an interesting way, you're basically making it easier. How do people take that when you tell them, hey, just say the truth? How does that work? Right, well, I mean, here's how the conversation goes. The CEO sitting across from me says, well, you know, our trajectory is to do this. So we have these customers and we're going to launch our product in three months. And it's like, okay, time out. Oh, we're going to be the leader in the industry. We're the leaders in the industry. Like if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that phrase, <laughs> right? And then I'm like, okay, time out. Like, what is the truth? I actually asked that question. Like, just tell me what is the truth? And then once we've established that, then within the confines of that truth, what is the most compelling way to tell your story? It's not, we have all these huge, you know, Fortune 500 customers and they love what we're doing. No, I mean, that that's at best a half truth. Maybe you're talking to one of them, but they, they're not gonna buy your product, like forget it, you know? So, so how do you say that differently? Here's the problem that we solve. This is an example of, a company that was, you know, losing its data, had privacy leaks, and was affecting its customers in this way. The way we solve that problem, for example, in the retail sector, or with this one company that has been a customer of ours since day one, tell the emotional connection between that product and how it saved the day. Like that is a much more compelling and truthful way of communicating a story that is disarming and unique because honestly, nobody does that. It's the truth. So as a small example. Yeah, I mean, it creates that, not just trust, but a human connection somehow. I mean, do you believe like I do that when people lie, I mean, as an executive, people who faked it in an interview never got the job. People who faked it when they sold me a product yeah, maybe I was fooled a couple of times, but that didn't last. It's, it's really not difficult for anyone who pays attention to see when people are lying. Yeah, I mean, the resume example or the interview example is classic, right? And I mean, I have to say, when I was first starting out, before I even started the Horn Group, I had a master's degree. I came from Boston. I had written a master's thesis on high-tech PR. I thought I was all that. And... I oversold myself in my first job and I paid a price because I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> and I was actually put on probation. Mm. Oh yes. And so that's a classic example of overselling yourself. 
and then having to retrench and work extra hard to learn and actually be able to do the job. And it's a terrible feeling. And then your friends say, how's the new job going? And like, you're gonna keep lying, as you said, like lies beget lies and the truth begets the truth. Feels a lot better to tell the truth. <laughs> I believe that. Let me ask you one, one last question, which I believe will be closer to the heart of a lot of, of our listeners. I don't know if this will be understood. I think you will get it right away. We're in constant PR mode, right? When we're with our kids, when we're our, with our friends, when we're with our partner, right? We're constantly in communications mode. And I think the same pressures that apply in the business world about trying to appear slightly different, maybe slightly more appropriate to the image that you think should be portrayed, also applies in a relationship, for example. And I, I find that probably most of the problems we have in relationships are because we fake it. We either fake it by making us look different than we are when we're dating, or we fake it because we swallow a few things and we don't share those emotions, you know, when it's time to share them openly, or we fake it because our partner would do something and instead of saying, hold on, this hurt me, we would sort of appear strong. Or Do you believe this whole mentality of make it don't fake it is also applicable in our individual lives? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you always want to portray your best self when you're meeting someone for the first time, if you're out on a date. And but the same theory applies. Yes, of course. It's this delicate balance between wanting to appear desirable and wanting to belong, making something work, moving something forward, right? But then the dirty little secret is, you know, you really don't know how to ski down the double block <laughs> mountain. <laughs> that know? will be figured out one day. <laughs> yes. Once you get there. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you really don't know how to cook like a Michelin star chef <laughs> uh, when you, you know, have that person over. So, you know, it's, yes, of course, the same theory and logic applies. You know, the, the one thing I, I will say is both personally and in a professional setting. Sometimes being authentic and telling the truth or being honest, however, whatever def, you know, way you want to describe it, you have to choose also the right time and the right words to be that way because it only really it works better if the person on the other side is willing to receive it and to hear it. And if a person is in a bad frame of mind, you know, you know, like he was out just having a really bad day. I just couldn't go there and give him this this piece of information that it's the truth. The truth hurts. Right. We've heard that saying. And so I want to say that the message of the book is is to make it by operating with integrity and to live your life that way, to be our best selves, to lead always with integrity first. But there are situations where, you know, in business that you have you have to tread lightly sometimes and make a note like you've got to have that conversation another day. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's tonight, but how you deliver that news and when also is very important. Well, I have to say, you know, every now and then one comes across an angel, someone that actually operates with values and integrity and it's refreshing. But when you meet that angel in hell, in like in the place where faking it, <laughs> Is, yeah. is the norm. It's so inspiring, Sabrina. It is so inspiring that you are within the operations of the gang and you choose to operate like the, you know, like the angel, really. I really think there is something for all of us to learn there. 
Well, thank you. That's such a compliment from you. Thank you. It's the truth. It took 30 years to uh, some tweaking and fine tuning <laughs> to, to get there, you know, but being in the belly of the beast and, you know, in public relations and the tech industry, I really did see it all and had to learn from my own mistakes. And hopefully, you know, this will help other people avoid making those mistakes and have the confidence and the resilience to be true to what really is right. And doing what's right is sometimes is very difficult because you have to deal with the elements of reality. I'll second that, Sabrina. I'll, I'll say very openly, I sometimes think about the number of blessings that got me to be as successful as I was. But I also realized that there were certain things I did in a way that allowed me to spare the cycles, the brain cycles, right? It is so much easier, so much easier to address the world with the truth. You're absolutely right. I always say anything that you say lovingly and truthfully will go very far. And yeah, sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes the world is not at the opportune moment. And sometimes, you know, the truth hurts. But I definitely, I think, you know, in my executive life and in my personal life, I think I must have saved like 30,000 hours of not having to crunch the facts so that my stories fit together. And it's so much easier to just say it as it is. And, and I think that's a very big inspiration for everyone. Good. Well, I, I certainly hope so. And it was a challenge to fit so many examples. And there are many that didn't make it into the book about the subject. But I, I did enjoy writing it. It was I wrote it during COVID. It was, couldn't think of a better <laughs> yeah. thing to do. <laughs> Good activity during COVID. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who knows Who knows where it will take me. I, I do hope that, you know, I'm not like, oh, we're going to create a movement. Like, Why not? Maybe we will. Maybe it will. But if it makes people think twice or try, you know, like, okay, people are so accustomed to not telling the truth that the only way to make it is to fake it, right? They have to rethink their story and how they're going to approach something. And then God forbid, you know, you, you realize, oh, your technology doesn't work or there's a fault with the algorithm or something like that, right? And then you have to admit the mistake. I mean, that's when telling the truth and facing reality is at a whole other level. So part of the, my story also includes dealing with crisis and crisis management and catching it early and planning and all of that. I think it's a, it's a very interesting read for anyone who, who breathes and talks. I think you know, if, you, <laughs> if, if you breathe and talk and so your brain constantly tells you what story should I tell, I think it's really interesting to realize that maybe the easier story to tell is the real story. I'm so grateful for your time, Sabrina. It's been such a pleasure. I'm a big fan of everything that you've achieved. I've lived in Silicon Valley, and I know that for you to have made it is a big, big testimony for what you're teaching us. So I'm really grateful for the time you spent with me today. Thank you, Mo. It was wonderful to talk with you this morning, and thank you for having me. What a wonderful message that was. I mean, in reality, of course, Sabrina's conversation mostly is about business, but believe it, believe it, faking it takes so much effort. It takes so much energy. And, you know, I always say, make it so that you don't have to fake it. Put that energy, put that concentration, put that attention into 
really trying to do the right thing and telling the right story. And I think that takes you a very, very long way. So Sabrina's book is actually due to release on June 22nd. Make it, don't fake it. I uh, once again hope that you always enjoy those conversations as much as I do. You do give me an alibi to meet so many interesting people and make so many new friends. And I'm very, very grateful for that. You can help me spread the message further by rating this podcast five stars. If you're on Apple Podcasts or spreading the message about it on social media, telling your friends, talking about what you learned and maybe just sharing it. I think that would make an enormous difference for everyone. Find me on social media. Tell me what you think. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, M Gaudet on Twitter, and Mo.Gaudet.Official on Facebook. And uh, tell me what you think, what I can do better. And I once again want to thank you so much for all of the amazingly incredible positive messages of gratitude and the kind words that you share. It's, uh, of course, as you can imagine, not me. It's all of those wise, wonderful guests that you give me the alibi to attract, to speak to us both, me and you. Do take time to slow down because, uh, of course, regardless of how busy you are every day, there is always time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.